This is The Next Turn, the home of conversations about skiing, ski racing, and sport. I'm your host, Martin Wilson, and thank you for joining us in the pursuit of better, to be better athletes, better coaches, better parents, and better fans. This week, a conversation with Mac Marcoux and Tristan Rogers. Welcome back to The Next Turn. It's great to have you here. First, let me say thanks for listening and liking and rating, reviewing, and doing all that you're doing to support The Next Turn. We really appreciate it. And thanks for those who have shared their thoughts of the day with us at thenextturnpodcast.com slash thoughts. There's some good feedback there. And be patient um, in the process of returning a bunch of those emails as we speak. And also, really happy to have Jeff Vibert and Kara Williams by my side as always. Jeff, how you doing, man? Hey, Martin. Awesome. Listen, I'm so envious that you and Kara got to talk to Mac. I first was introduced to Mac watching the movie Blind Faith that we'll talk about later. But um, for those of you who don't know, Mac is a legally blind ski racer. And not only that, he's a two-time gold medalist at the Paralympics in both Sochi and Pyeongchang. So the conversation is fantastic and he's just a, a great kid. Kara, it is pretty fascinating. And you know, Jeff talks about blind faith and some of the lines that are in those movies. You skied some of those. What do you think about those? I think that they are the gnarliest lines on on Whistler and, and possibly, um, you know, they're right up there with the gnarliest lines in North America. And to do that blind behind a guide is it's mind blowing. And if you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. Go check it out. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's worth a watch for sure. But Jeff, why don't we get straight into it here? Why don't you give us the hard facts on Mac Marcoux and Tristan Rogers? Sure. Mac Marcoux, born June 20th, 1997 in Haviland Bay, Ontario. In 2006, he started to lose his sight and was diagnosed with Stargardt disease, became legally blind in 2007. Mac is classified as a B3 visually impaired athlete. At age 15, Mac, along with his brother and guide, BJ, competed at the IPC Alpine Skiing World Cup in New Zealand, winning three medals. The following year, 2016, at the age of 16, his first Paralympics in Sochi. And as I mentioned, he won bronze in the downhill in Super G and gold in the GS. Returned to the Olympics in 2018 in Pyeongchang, finishing with a bronze in GS and a gold in downhill. Tristan Rogers is from Ontario, uh, Ottawa, Ontario, born November 6, 1998. Grew up skiing in Mount Tremblant, Quebec, and has been guiding Mac since 2018. The two of them filmed a, a movie called Blind Faith, which we talked about, where they traversed some epic lines in Whistler that you and I and Kara have all skied with our vision. Yeah, it makes it a little <laughs> easier, huh? Kara, what's the story here in this interview? We, you know, we were pretty lucky to chat with them um, for sure. But uh, what do you think people should be listening for? Well, Mac uh, was obviously already an adrenaline junkie when he began to lose his vision. And in this interview, he talks about um, what that was like um, at the age of nine, losing his vision and then being approached by Alpine Canada and asked to join the Paralympic team. And um, he talks about his successes, how he's recovering uh, from injury ahead of the Winter Games in Beijing this year. And uh, his guide, as you said, Tristan Rogers also joins us for this conversation. And as a former ski racer, Tristan now has a a chance, another chance uh, to ski at a top level in his partnership with Mac. And it's pretty cool to listen to these two um, and, and their relationship. And it's obvious there's a tremendous amount of respect and trust there. Yeah, respect and trust for sure. 
it's it's really quite incredible to talk to these two. Um, it was a real pleasure. I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Mac Marcou and Tristan Ronders on the next turn. Uh, today's our first official day returning to snow. So it's been awesome. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it was less than ideal weather-wise. It's pouring rain, but it's uh, it's just good feeling to be back on skis. How long has your rehab process been? And where are you? Like you're saying, you're just getting back on snow now. How much further do you have to go? Um, it's been a journey. It's been kind of on and off for three years now. Pretty much since Tristan uh, jumped in the in the guide seat, we uh, I had I've been battling with some herniated discs in my low back for a couple of years now, and things have been getting better. And then you know back things never really they never really come around to 100. percent So I've definitely a few speed bumps, and uh, we tried to return to snow um, in September in Italy at a training camp, and we made about eight days, and then things let go again. So. We uh, kind of went back to the drawing boards. We've been fortunate enough to be working with uh, Scott Livingston here in Trombaugh, um, who kind of rehabbed Eric's back a little bit and worked with Eric for the last, I think, what, five years or five years of his career or so. Just being able to come here and work with him. And he's a, quite the expert in the area of, uh, of trying to get athletes back on, on track. So it's been sick and it's been, yeah, seven weeks in the gym now, and we're just getting ready to kind of on snow this week for four days, and then wheeling out to Italy on Friday. Right back into it. Is it just like when it when it feels good, it feels good until it doesn't feel good? Is that sort of where you're at now? Yeah, it's been, uh, it's getting, we're, we've been working on a lot of actually like kind of retraining um, movement patterns and and kind of just relearning how to move in a, in a sense over the last seven weeks. and. We're still a long way from return to, you know, full training program, but just being able to, now we're kind of implementing the stuff we've been working on over the last seven weeks and kind of putting it into a training environment on snow and trying to make sure that we're um, able to kind of sustain and, and really move forward for like kind of week at one week at a time. And it's going to be a little bit of winging it, I think, until, until things are coming, coming along, but yeah, it's very much. Things are really good at one point, and then I can't get out of bed type thing. Yeah, it's called growing <laughs> up a little bit, I guess. Uh, Karen and I were talking earlier, and I'll let Kara jump in after after this, I guess. But um, I, I, I kind of wanted to ask, how you, you mentioned your movement patterns. How do you go about changing your skiing? How, like, what is your specific learning process? How do you figure it out? And where does Tristan fall into it? As well. So maybe you can go first, Mac, and then we'll let Tristan fact check you. Well, for, for, you know, like changing your skiing is never easy. You know, you always fall into kind of your default settings. You, you know, some habits are really good and some are sometimes not the greatest. And um, I think when you find yourself kind of in trouble or kind of really just working hard, you sometimes fall back to that default setting. And it really takes a lot of time and repetition to really almost over exaggerate certain movements so that eventually your body learns how to move properly and it's more of a subconscious thing if you really think about it for a long time it becomes easier and it becomes you know a less of a thought and more of an action and then after a while it turns into just the way your way things work yeah Tristan, does that check out yeah like, i think so does he, give, does he give himself space to sort of like is he actually <clears throat> patient yeah honestly i think that if 
if anything, over the last three years, Mac has had to be patient, um, overcoming those back injuries uh, little by little. He's kind of realizing how much he can push. And, and I think there's like a certain level of accountability, not only like towards himself, but between the both of us, just being really sure that we're not doing too much nor doing too little and, and trying to get in that sweet spot, um, you know, doing enough mileage for Mac to be able to, you know, stay confident and improve obviously, but not pushing too hard to the point where we're just doing laps for, for nothing. And mm-hmm. yeah, just trying to stay accountable, I think is, is a big one. So I've done, I've done some of the work that you're talking about, Mac. I have uh, some herniated disc issues too. And um, so you said you were working with, were you working with Eric Gaze, former trainer? Is that what? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Eric Gaze, former trainer, and he works with a lot of, um, a lot of athletes here, here out of Quebec. Um, he works with uh, Mick Kingsbury as well. And, and he has a very big hockey background actually. So he worked with the Habs for a bit and the Rangers for a bit. And he just over the years has really specialized in kind of retraining movement and really focusing on how the body moves in uh, kind of the most efficient manner. We're very lucky so to be paired with him. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, an absolute legend. That's pretty incredible. Can I nerd out a little bit here? What specifically are you working on in your skiing? Like, where do you feel like it's just mentioned that you have to be more efficient with your training, right? So as you get older and you're managing injuries, you can't train six days. You got to do it in two, three days. It's you're doing it 25% of the volume, but you can stay confident, but, but making change is hard when you only have 20% of what you're used to. What specifically are you working on that that you think this is the key for me to be as fast as I can? Uh, I think you hear it a lot, and it's it can be quality over quantity in a sense. Like for over the last couple of years, you know, we we've came at these uh, this injury, I guess, with I think ten different directions, and kind of <laughs> have been trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. And the cool thing is, we've learned a lot of things that don't work. And, um, volumes definitely up there and, and really, you know, pushing when it's not really productive to push, you know, when you get past the certain sense, uh, or the certain state of, um, you know, you pass the quality training and now you're just putting in miles and, and things become a little bit lazy because you're a little bit fatigued. And if you really can kind of have a solid game plan at the beginning of a training block, and then kind of roll one day at a time, because it's always kind of reassessing how your body feels, making sure that you're still in a pretty solid little green zone with kind of in the energy bar and taking the time to, to put each run into really good use. Um, I've been guilty of doing both really just kind of meandering through the day and for really almost overthinking. So finding that sweet spot that Tristan said is, you know, working too hard and not working enough. I think if you look at a slope style jump or a jump in kind of any way, if you look at, if you land kind of in that sweet spot, you can, it's a lot less impact than kind of hitting the knuckle or going too deep into the transition. And it works really well um, as an analogy for training is like, if you can stay in that sweet spot, you can get a lot more volume in and just have a lot more productive training session. All right. I, I want to go even deeper because <laughs> like, I really, I really do because I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. Like it's funny. We've talked for 10 minutes and we haven't mentioned that you're, you're blind. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like you can't see. D- does that affect how 
how you train or does it make you train a certain way do you think or is it just that's how your brain's wired and that's how you learn or do you have to adapt and i gotta think for one uh, and this is really technical because i just thinking about it what it would be like to be skiing behind somebody trusting Mm -hmm. them and then knowing what good skiing is that fluid movement and and that athletic sort of stuff I'd be so stiff and nervous and, (laughs) and just, that would be the tendency, right? Just to tense up. Is that the biggest thing that makes you successful is that you are able to stay athletic and really trust, trust Tristan and and your other guys over the years? Or what is it? How do you counter the natural feeling of Christ? I can't see. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think the biggest thing is confidence are gaining confidence and gaining good momentum. Like Tristan will, can attest to this a huge but for me my biggest thing is i need to find good feelings on skis kind of right at the beginning of the day like it doesn't have to be a lot of turns but i need to have a couple good turns linked up in order to feel good and know i guess it's just like a quick reminder in my head that i kind of know what i need to do in a in a course environment so in that free skiing and warm-up being able to kind of start building confidence then and then using each day to build momentum i think starting things off as a really basically starting the season off as a big staircase and taking it one step at a time and setting kind of daily goals and trying to build that confidence so that I can be fluid because that is the biggest issue. Um, you know, as soon as you get conservative, blind or sighted, you, your tendency is to lock up, you get stiff, you ski kind of like a brick. And I think if you watch lots of my skiing over the years, that's how I, I ski lots of the time. But um, when things are fast is when, we're skiing confident and and really moving well. So finding kind of the best way to make this possible in training and training it as much as we can so that kind of any course, any scenario, we can, you know, find that sense of fluidity and and uh, be in the right place on the ski to be moving and dynamic. And from there, it's just, uh, it's just a lot of doing exactly what Tristan does, kind of watching when he initiates a turn and, and watching how, little things watching how his legs bounce with micro train or if it's something's really chattery or if there's a hold just so I can time things properly. But if you're confident, that's all things that can just kind of subconsciously happen compared to when you're skiing like a brick and then you get tossed out by a hole in the course and you, you can't move because you're so static. Yeah. That checks out for everybody. Tristan, what's your job? Like, what do you do? Like, what makes you good at what you do? And I'll get maybe I'll ask Tristan. Well, I don't know about that later. <laughs> I don't know if I'm any good, but we're still here. So, um, <laughs> all right, good. Yeah. So, Mac has uh peripheral vision, he's zero, zero percent in the central, but enough that he can kind of have an idea of where I am. I wear a really, really bright fluorescent orange shirt when we're skiing, which um gives him kind of some definition against that like white snow background of where I am and um essentially I I do my best to look as controlled and confident and trustworthy as I can because um (laughs) essentially like he can see me and he can see where I'm skiing and he just has to like follow as I'm relaying information about um the course the conditions the terrain change the rhythm change and I think we, we've boiled it down to like a few key words. Like if the train is changing, then I'll, I'll say that right away. And he kind of knows what to expect. Obviously we do like a very good inspection together and we're pretty thorough 
um, with making a game plan for, for every course. But it's almost kind of like a reminder, you know, of where we are in the course and what's coming up. Because obviously when we're skiing, for example, like Super G, we're, we're like kind of scanning, obviously at looking as low as we can being in our talk, but scanning a little bit further to see, kind of reminding ourselves where we are in the course. But Matt can't do that because of his vision, obviously. So I've got to be those eyes for him and kind of remind him where we are um, in the course, whether it be like what section we are or if something's changing, if, um, you know, we've made a, a plan to ski a section really round and it's going really well, then I'll relay that information and kind of try and get them to go straighter and faster. And yeah, I think just being super vocal about everything that I'm feeling and seeing. Yeah. Like you said, there's a huge level of trust. Um, and obviously that goes both ways, trusting that, trusting myself and, and that I'm saying the right things and, and in, in the right position and trusting Mac that he'll be able to, you know, obviously follow and, understand those communications. Can you walk me through um, what a typical inspection um, is like? Is is the course like, Tristan, are you and Mac looking at the course um, gate by gate? And is Mac like sort of uh, memorizing it so that when you're skiing down, you can have keywords, you can say, here we go, we're going over that roll. We've got a delay gate coming up. Yeah, pretty much exactly. I think uh, obviously every course has its kind of cues. For example, when we train in Pana, we come out of the start and then there's the hammer hut, the basketball coaches, hay fever, all, all those cue words. And I think we try and do that, kind of break it up for every, every course that we inspect together. And um, you're going to have like your say five, six key areas in a, in a speed track that you really have to be on point, whether it's blind gates, rolls, there's a little bit of shitty snow condition, something that you really have to be on top of. And the rest is kind of just linking those five sections together. And so us building a solid game plan going kind of gate to gate, but really taking in kind of everything. Like I'm looking at where the die sits a lot because that's something that I can see. So I can, knowing where I am from the die line and being able to pull things in to come high up for a blind gate or something, you know, the same way somebody that is kind of looking for the top of the top of a gate in the distance or using like something a little bit farther away to kind of use as a trajectory, you know, some people look at trees and whatever, like you, you get a game plan and point where you're aiming. So I use the die lines. And then I think by the time we get to the bottom of the course, kind of build a really strong visualization of what the track looks like from like knowing where every groomer cross rut is, where gates are really buff, where things are soft. And then getting down to the finish line, we run through kind of an immediate visualization together and then just kind of repetitively go through it. I think that's why downhill is such a such a fun event for me because like the idea that you get a couple laps to really get things nailed in is best case. So if I can, you know, ski something at 60% and really just make sure that everything that we've said is on point. Cause you know, sometimes you're making a line adjustment when what you thought was a good idea in, in inspection, you can change things up when you actually get to run it at speed. And, and that way, you know, it can build such a strong image in your head that you could ski the course. You know, potentially you could, ideally you'd want to be able to ski it kind of, even if you didn't have a guide, not very fast, but you'd know where to go. And then when you have Tristan and him relaying all the information, it allows me to kind of anticipate as much as possible. And it just makes kind of the perfect storm for a, for a solid run. Yeah. I think it's, it feels like almost like a script that you're kind of cultivating and you're, you're creating this 
you know, list of keywords, like, okay, we get to here, I'm going to say this, and we get to this next, you know, double, and I'm going to say this, and, and you rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it until it becomes pretty natural. And, and we know exactly what, what's going to be said on this gate. And, and then you just have nothing left but to execute. Yeah, just nothing other than execute. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, yeah, that's it. Mac, I find it fascinating be, like, because it's obviously trust is so important. But you've had three other guides, I, at least, that you've been really successful with. You've, you've had two Olympic gold medals. No pressure, Tristan. But like, <laughs> how, do you, how do you go about selecting a guy like Tristan? How does that come about, one? And two, like, is it you adapting to the guide or, or are you training the guide or is it a little bit of melding, melding in the middle? So I guess the selection process would be, it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of shot in the dark. We, uh, when kind of any guide yeah. retires, you know, my brother, Jack, Rob, and, you know, like you said, I've, I've worked with many guides kind of short term in, in, you know, injury periods where guides are hurt and whatnot. But, uh, I think the biggest thing is, you know, we reach out and look for athletes that are, you know, really strong skiers and still eager to be out there getting after it, I think is the biggest part, you know, like a lot of athletes that are on the edge of retiring from this are kind of fed up with, with the sport or, or just ready to take a different direction. And I think, you know, we've been super lucky when we shoot emails out um, kind of across the country to all the fist programs and just say like, Hey, my guy's retiring. We're looking for, you know, someone to kind of fill the slot. And then we kind of wait for an application process to come through and, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work with four different guides, one being my brother. So, you know, we got, we got along really great because we were a uh, family and we grew up doing what we do. But, you know, I think the rest of them were a lot of just really good luck. Like everyone's been such kick-ass years along with really great human beings outside of, outside of skiing. So it makes things really easy because, you know, we spend a lot of time together off the snow. We need to get, get along really well or it's, uh, things aren't going to click. So I think that's the biggest, the biggest hurdle in the, in the selection process. And then, you know, learning to work together is always, it's kind of a fun, a fun challenge in, in a way you get very used to skiing with, with one person as you would, if you do it for a couple of years at a time and, you know, the skiing with somebody new, you get an opportunity to see how they ski because everyone skis a little bit differently. So kind of getting a little bit of different ingredients in a sense and and pulling good things from from each guide you know we we've talked about this a little bit over the years and you know things that you could notice my brother and i were skiing together it was we were learning together and developing kind of at the same speed um just because we were you know i was 13 he was 16 we were kind of grew up ski racing together so we were kind of moving along at the same pace and then as he retired and i i or in between him being injured, I ski with Rob a lot and Rob was such a strong skier and so confident. I, uh, you know, began to really be able to trust in, in where we were going and, and what he had to say was right because, you know, I was still very green. I hadn't skied much speed at the time that I was 15, 16. And, um, I really needed a good mentor in that sense. And then, you know, going back to my brother and my brother rehabbed and, and managed to come back and be a much stronger skier. And, we skied things out until 2016 and then I skied with Jack who was such a calm skier and 
and just someone who can make anything look super casual. Um, you know, he can be in a lot of trouble and, and he wouldn't be able to show it in body language. And then Tristan has been unreal. He's so powerful and he's a really aggressive skier, which has been different for me. Like it's, it's a definitely a learning process because, you know, having someone that's very supple and, and smooth like Rob and Jack, and then have Tristan come in and kind of lay the hammer down. It's uh, it's cool because it kind of, at the beginning it was, you know, he was learning how to kind of ease off in a sense of the intensity and be able to be smoother and, and be able to, you know, communicate and relay. But the trust part just comes in that process as we kind of learn to ski together. The reality is, is that I don't really have an option not to trust them. <laughs> um, I guess, right? Yeah, guess. like if you're jumping behind somebody, it's either do what they say or you're on your own. And I'd rather follow anybody than uh, point and shoot kind of blindly, so to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. Uh, yeah. uh, Tristan, what's the biggest adjustment that you've had to make? What's the transition like for from a fist athlete to a guide? Do you have to adjust your skiing or do, or is it you just, you got to set the line that you think he, he needs? Yeah, I think thankfully the transition was very easy. Um, like I just showed up to Mount Hood and Mac told me exactly what to do. And he was like, Hey, I need you to say this, 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 and this. And then I go and make a mistake. And he's like, no, don't do that. Do this instead. Wait, wait, wait. Like, What's yeah. this, this, and this? What are you specifically saying? What's this, this, and this? <laughs> well, he, he'd say like, okay, well, we're going to get here and you're, you'd say double, you know, or um, hairpin, flush, roll, um, we don't ski turning, straight. Yeah. yeah. We don't, <laughs> we're not doing slalom anymore. So no more hairpins and flushes, but yeah. And then learning a little bit how effective the body language is and that kind of unspoken communication between the two of us just being really confident and and um that that was a big stepping stone i think because mac has enough vision to see me and see um kind of what my my body's doing and if i'm kind of being aggressive then it encourages him to really charge and feel that confidence um if i'm more kind of lay back and and cruising then it's like okay this is a chill one we can just kind of cruise and he kind of feeds off my energy in that sense so i think the biggest thing that i've learned is to find a line that i can ski where i still appear to be you know really knifing the turns and being aggressive but slowing myself down as much as i can without uh stiffening the ski um because i think if i can be as clean as possible then that doesn't kick up any snow, which is a big issue for Mac because it's cold and he can't see in a big dust of snow. So I try <laughs> and be as clean as I can so that there's, you know, as little snow coming off my skis, but still slowing myself down enough for Mac to be able to follow. Um, because if I just lay into a turn, you know, obviously like I'm generating quite a bit of speed. And if Mac does make a mistake and I accelerate at the same time, then there's just too big of a gap between us for him to follow. And then on the other hand, I've got to be still on my toes because if Mac does knife a turn and I'm kind of scrubbing, then I can't have an option to just put him down the fall line and, you know, accelerate because he's coming in hot. So I think using the line and having a really round um, and high line, if I do get in trouble, I can just straighten it out, go a little bit faster and like kind of get away from Mac 
And then in the other case, if Mac does make a mistake, then it's really easy and, and it's a quick adjustment for me to be in the right place. So I think the biggest change is really the line that I ski. And yeah, like I said, trying to make it as clean as I can. So Mac, you're, you're a Paralympic athlete and you guys are a team in Paralympics, but um, you became the first vision impaired athlete to complete three infamous lines in Whistler. So <laughs> excitation, I've skied all three and I cannot believe you did this with a, a visual impairment. That's insane. So walk me through this. The coffin is the one I'm concerned about because the other two are, you know, they're easy mm -hmm. enough. They roll over. Um, you can talk, uh, Tristan can talk you through it, but with the coffin, you have to commit. Like you, you can't slow yourself down, Tristan. You're not, you know, you have to straight line with a little bunny hop over some rocks. And then, uh, if you make it past that, you're going to go mock Chanel into the bowl and you're hoping that there's maybe no Abbey debris, you know, you're just kind of holding on for dear life. And, and obviously there could be someone skiing down there. Like, how does that work? <laughs> Uh, yeah, like you said, a lot of commit. I think, um, you know, it's such a foreign style art, I guess, way of skiing for us. And, you know, I think when, when we did film, uh, Blind Faith, it was, you know, not the most primo conditions. We had a kind of short window in between training camps to get things done. And we were also, you know, we hadn't spent much time on fast skis, like other than, you know, the occasional free ski day burning around the mountain. But I think we were learning a lot. <laughs> over those uh you know a couple of days of filming and we'd always been I, i'd always been fascinated i still fascinated with free skiing it's it's uh to me it's just the most ridiculously it's, it's skiing in its most like natural form and it's so cool and it's you know you can be so kind of creative with how things play out when you're building kind of your line and you know skiing these these lines in whistler were were really cool opportunity in, in the sense that you know we could kind of dabble with a little bit of free skiing while staying in bounds. And, um, I think each, each of the three, um, lines kind of give a different vibe to them. You know, excitation is steep and that's about it. It's steep <laughs> and, uh, and it's a little bit janky, but I guess the coffin is one of those, um, kind of quick and it's only a couple seconds, but you you kind of do have to point and shoot. So I think, you know, after kind of after filming then the more time that we spent free skiing and, you know, I spent a ton of time in the backcountry, kind of snowmobiling and, and, uh, you know, doing other things. But I think the more time we spend kind of in those scenarios, they relate back to ski racing in so many ways when you're kind of getting to the top of a, a race run. And it is that kind of commit factor because there is no, like there's the option to speed check, but it's not going to be fast and it's not going to, you know, hopefully result in you making your way to the box. <laughs> um, so if you're, you know, just really finding different ways to simulate that kind of level of commitment in other avenues of sport kind of relays so far back to ski racing and, and just builds a, you know, that confidence that we were talking about earlier. And I'm sure I know that uh, a lot of times when people drop into to a serious line like that, your instinct is to go into the mountain, which is obviously the last thing you should do because then you're off your downhill <laughs> ski. Did you find that, uh, I mean, did, were you fighting that at all? Because I can only imagine that it, it must have been um, a little unnerving. Like how many times did you attempt these lines? Um, at first, yeah, definitely fighting it a lot. And I think just the instinct is, yeah, like you said, go into the mountain, but also like, I think in reality, we wouldn't ski as close as we did together, you know, because it was such a, it was the beginning of a learning process and we've learned now and I've learned that like, it's a lot safer first off and 
kind of a different approach in ski racing instead of me following each turn and watching what happens in each turn you know you're dealing with a lot of things that we don't have to deal with on a race track like sloughs and you know rocks underneath the snow and stuff that like one person can scrape over and then they're they're exposed so allowing kind of someone to go ahead and ski kind of and i just kind of watch from the top um pick and choose now which days are good days um you know obviously light is super important um especially for me because any definition is is good compared to you know just just putting unnecessary risk is not a good idea but uh yeah it's uh it's definitely there's all these different factors of free skiing that like we never took into account or at least i didn't i had i had not really any idea what to expect but it's uh it's still very much a work in progress but something that i'm really kind of passionate about keeping moving i i love that tristan when we we spoke last week it was cool to sort of hey is this where you're going there's like there's a lot of history to be made in the free ski world if that's where you're heading what is that you know if if the process goes from fifth gear to guide where does it go from race guide to free ski guide what adjustments do you think you're going to have to make to head that way is it a whole new set of language i got to think but it's a lot more variable terrain and you know there's rocks here there's this there what's going to be the biggest challenge for you to feel comfortable taking mac into situations like that yeah I, that's a really good question like we'd just come off a uh, eight race win streak uh before we filmed blind faith we were feeling kind of confident um in ourselves in our skiing and then we kind of got chalked into this unknown territory of disaster <laughs> it was hilarious because we knew kind of exactly what worked inside the b-nets but we'd never really been out there and we'd never been in that free ski environment so it was really cool to figure figure things out kind of together in the movie. I kind of talk a little bit about the process that Mac and BJ went through um, when they were first learning to race um, and kind of was able to compare that with how Mac and I learned to free ski together a little bit, having never done it really. But as for the future, I, I think that there's a lot that can be taken away from ski racing and, and, you know, things outside of ski racing, like, mountain biking and, and kind of just doing all these activities together. Um, obviously there's a really, really high level of trust that can be taken away from that. And I think the more we do it, the more kind of experience that we gather from those situations and find ways to cope with those challenges um, that are completely unknown from a ski racing kind of perspective. You use the term cope with those challenges. Mac, I got to think that you've coped with some challenges and you've, you've done that pretty well. Like in that's, you've built up a level of resilience and a way to problem solve and, and figure out a way to do things. Is that your best attribute? Like, is like, how, how do you explain being so successful for so long at such a young age? Like, again, like (laughs) we're talking 2014 it's what 16 17 years of age a gold medal in pyeongchang 2018 a gold medal like that's pretty good is that, <laughs> is that what makes you so good like that, um, or is there's there's something about your skiing that makes you so good what is it what's the deal i think i can i can probably i can attest a lot of it maybe just to my to my upbringing um you know i grew up in a very motorsport oriented family 
we lived pretty far outside of town. So we didn't, we didn't play the, the, the standard sports that the kids weren't allowed, like not that we weren't allowed, but it really wasn't practical for us to play yeah. soccer and hockey and, and all these, all these things that all the rest of the kids in school were playing because, you know, we lived 45 minutes North of town and in order to go back and forth for practices and stuff like that, it just wasn't going to be feasible. And I think my dad raced everything with the motor <laughs> growing up. So like between cars and snowmobiles and dirt bikes and three wheelers and anything you can get a hand on with, uh, with the throttle he was racing. And, um, that was bred into us pretty young, you know, instead of us going to on family trips to, we did the trips to amusement parks and stuff, but they were usually tagged on the side of, uh, you know, traveling around to racetracks in the summertime, chasing stock car racing around. And then in the wintertime, we were snowmobiling and around snowmobile racing a lot. And, and I think when my vision started to deteriorate, it became kind of evident that we weren't going to be able to do these things in the same capacity, or that was the idea. That was the thought, um, you know, that my parents went through because blanket is this, we're going to change some stuff, but we don't know what, we don't know what to expect. So they were almost kind of gave me the reins <laughs> in a sense and you know, do what you're comfortable with. And, you know, they pushed me when I needed to push, but other than kind of throwing me in ski racing and taking me out of go-kart racing for liability issues, <laughs> um, it was, it was more of a, you know, we were racing in the States and you know, something, if something happens, you're kind of, you're kind of screwed. So we, uh, we jumped to ski racing um, to kind of fill the void of the go-kart racing, but outside of ski racing, I was still, you know, chasing my big brother around trying to do everything I could. So still spent a ton of time snowmobiling and being kind of placed in Whistler. Um, I'd stopped riding dirt bikes for, for a while and, uh, somehow some way we got, we got, uh, centralized in Whistler for our first trip. And I remember just opening up the world of mountain biking and I was like, what? Like, you know, I'd, I'd been obsessed with it when I was a kid, but it was because I seen all the magazines from everything that was happening on the North shore. And, and then we were just there. <laughs> so, um, there was no way I wasn't going to try and immerse myself in the culture and, and, uh, really get after it on a mountain bike. Cause when I told my parents I was riding bikes, they thought, you know, I was going out for a casual bike ride, but we were, uh, you know, teeing off in the bike park and trying to line up the biggest jump lines we could. And, you know, it just, out. yeah, it just made sense to kind of push ourselves in every way we knew how. And I think as my ski career developed, it was kind of the same game plan. We were lots of it. We were winging it. We were doing what we were told and we were so lucky to have such a crazy support system between my family being supportive and saying, yeah, if you want to do it, get after it. And then, you know, having Alpine Canada to work with from such a young age, I started skiing with the team when I was, I want to say 13. So just facilitating such productive training environments and, and kind of placing us in with the big dogs in a sense, you know, we went to our first world cup or our first nationals in 2011 in the spring. And we'd never been around para skiing at all. You know, I raced able-bodied in Northern Ontario. I raced out of the Sioux for, from when I was eight to, I don't even know, I guess 13. <laughs> so a good five years racing able-bodied and then jumped over to the para circuit and had no idea what to expect when we went out there, but we were just going to go out and kind of see where we stacked up against the rest of the world. And we, we did well. I think we came out of it with a, with a gold and a silver and, and some things. And, you know, as a 13 year old kid, I was on top of the world. 
um, looking around and seeing all the boys that were later my teammates, um, like Josh Duick and Sam Daniels and all these legends in the sport, Chris Williamson, that, that kind of wrote the book of para-alpine skiing. <laughs> to be around them was crazy. You know, we were little kids whispering like, oh my God, those people are so cool. And a week later, or two weeks later, we were rolling into a spring camp with them. Um, yeah. The national team kind of swooped up and picked us up and said, hey, you guys came to come out to, uh, to a camp at Sunshine and we're going to see what you can do. And we were like, heck yeah, let's do it. So my brother and I kind of just put our heads down and really took advantage of the tools that we had and um, things just snowballed. And I think it all goes back to just how we were raised and, you know, maybe a little bit of a loose family in a, in a way we were, uh, you know, always pushing ourselves to go bigger, go faster. And it was the same in ski racing. So just finding different ways to really kind of manifest this. I want to be careful how I ask this. And if I, if I mess it up, if I mess it up, I'll edit it out. So I'll, I'll maybe give myself a couple tries. I've worked with a couple of para-athletes, um, sit skiers, and their level of being an adrenaline junkie is like <laughs> clinical, right? It's And if you talk to them, like you mentioned Josh Duek, who is one of the most amazing skiers, one of the craziest dreamers of what can be done and a willingness to do whatever. It seems like he a lot of that happened because of his accident and how he became a para-athlete. You seem like you were raised as a little bit of an adrenaline junkie in the backyard. <laughs> did, did you get an extra? So two questions. One, does that sort of check out that a lot of the para-athletes have this, this is an extra drive of adrenaline junkiness and you were able to get that from a young age. That's why you kind of excelled at, because you were just raised that way anyways. The answer is yes. They're all nuts. Okay, good. So that's that's the right. best example. They're, they're <laughs> crazy. Look at these. Look at this guy. <laughs> He's riding a line with six percent vision. I think you have to be crazy to do that. All right, good. As long as you're talking about it out loud, I feel better about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think the calculated risk is always a big thing, and like you know, Josh always. He's loose, and he was such a big role model to me when I was a kid. You know, just being around him, he was a superstar in as a skier, but just as a person in the, in the way that kind of he carried himself, he was, uh, you know, so driven, but also so professional and also so loose. Like he was kind of the perfect storm of just kind of a nutcase that could keep things reined in enough that, uh, that he could be fast on skis. But in reality, he just wanted to go out and go bigger and go faster. And, and, uh, I could kind of relate to that. So being, you know, young, I just kind of watched what Josh was doing and, I think at that point we had Morgie, uh, Morgan Perrin, who was just as loose. He has, you know, no hands or feet and he's an absolute lunatic. But it's, uh, it's so cool to, you know, meet a bunch of people kind of that are like-minded in a sense. And I think that's where I've been so lucky to be kind of immersed in this, in this culture of people that, um, out, yeah, we're trying to get, you know, Sandy and, and get, get a little loose, but also, you know, trying to make sure that, we make it down a speed run or get come out of the backcountry each day. And um, it's been really cool to find different avenues to be able to kind of continue to push myself because that is the best feeling that kind of sense of unknown and not really sure what's going to happen, whether you're standing kind of on the top of a cornice and looking down or, you know, I spend a ton of time snowmobiling and it's probably one of my biggest passions outside of skiing and, 
it's kind of the same way, whether you're teeing up jumps or drops and things like that, where you're, where, you know, you get that, you go a little bit numb um, because you don't know what's going to happen, but coming out the bottom, there's no better feeling. So finding different ways to continue to kind of chase that feeling, but also learning a lot of really cool things along the way. It's just, it's so much fun in any kind of area or any time I can put myself in that situation. I'm kind of the first person waiting in line to, to get after it. I think like you asked about kind of the longevity of Mac's career, obviously he's been doing this for a long time. And I think that can largely be attributed to that kind of really broad range of activities that he does, you know, like he'll take time away from ski racing to go and ride a sled for two weeks with his friends in Revelstoke. And, you know, obviously you can do ski racing really seriously and be really focused and driven and passionate. But if you don't have those outlets to just go out and have fun and, and kind of be a dude, like it's just, it's not sustainable for, for a very long period of time. So I think, um, you know, that 10 plus year career is, is in due in partly in, in, you know, due to those outlets that Mac has. So Mac, what's next for you? You're looking at the Paralympics coming up and what's after that? Like, is there any sport, is there anything you've got your eye on next? It sounds like you got a lot of irons in the fire and uh, you could be maybe a multi-sport Paralympic athlete. If they implement downhill mountain biking. Yeah, I think the the idea next is, um, you know, definitely to kind of stay in touch with ski racing a little bit, but really kind of take the world of free skiing and, and snowmobiling and uh, mountain biking a little more seriously in uh in a way that i can you know not as like still be trying trying to stay with the team but i'm going to take a couple of years to really just go out and kind of chase these these things that i've been kind of putting not as much putting off but putting aside to be able to really keep ski racing and and stay healthy because you know what it's uh i'm pretty hard on my body <laughs> and uh <laughs> It, it can only take so much. So just finding the right time. And I think after the games, you know, the game plan is to just try and find different ways to really immerse myself in the, in the back country in the wintertime and, and see what, what kind of things that we can get done. I don't, you know, I've been really lucky to have a really amazing crew of guys that um, I ride with in the wintertime snowmobile wise. And I think just, you know, facilitating a similar crew in the free ski world and, you know, <laughs> trying to find different ways to, to be able to go out there safely and see what could happen. And then in the summertime, really um, kind of chasing, you know, mountain biking and, and getting back into moto a little bit and just finding ways to really go, go fast. Not It's more <laughs> so push the, push the envelope of like, you know, the perception. I think when I, when I started ski racing, it was because we looked into sports for a visually impaired athlete. And at the right time, it was the right move. And, um, you know, I've learned a ton in ski racing, but finding different ways to put that back into my life outside of skiing. Um, you know, if someone would have looked at me or my parents would have looked at me and asked me if I wanted to go ski racing or if I wanted to, you know, move to BC and play in the backcountry, I would have hands down went to the backcountry, but it, it's just nobody was doing it and there's still nobody doing it. So if I can, you know, push that avenue a little bit and s- kind of open up the can in a sense and see where things can go you know now there's a lot of other athletes doing the same thing like if you look at trevor kennison in the the u.s he's an absolute lunatic on skis and on a mountain bike and and all these athletes that are just kind of opening up this whole new avenue of sport that 
really aren't Paralympic based. I think the idea, you know, what inspires me so much about Mac is his willingness to contribute to like the community, the, the fact that you don't have to choose a Paralympic sport just because you're disabled. It doesn't mean that you have 12 things to choose from. Like Mac wants to encourage people to do whatever they want, you know, through this career of snowmobiling and free skiing and mountain biking and kind of pave a path for kids who are in his position and kind of make that an opportunity for, for younger people. Welcome back. Special thanks to Mac Marku and Tristan Rogers for an incredible conversation and letting us get to know them a little bit better and hearing their story and becoming better fans. So really appreciate it. It's now time for Thoughts of the Day. And before we share our Thoughts of the Day with you, I'd like to encourage you to share your thoughts with us. And you can do that at thenextturnpodcast.com slash thoughts. All right, Kara, here we go. It was a great conversation. What you thinking? What are your thoughts of the day? Well, like so many able-bodied athletes we've spoken to, Mac dreamed of competing in the world stage. And when he was diagnosed at the age of nine, uh, he talks about printing off a, a label and sticking it to the back of a student card that said, my goal is to ski at the Paralympics in 2014 in Sochi. And as we know, he won a gold and two bronze in those games, and he's gone on to win another gold and bronze at the 2018 games in Pyeongchang. And now he's heading into his third games with uh, with his new guide, Tristan. So, you know, if he, Mac talks about wanting to be the world's first blind free skier, and I am inclined to pull up a chair and watch him do it. What an absolutely inspiring guy. And if you notice, Tristan kind of snuck it in there at the end that um, that Mac has ridden A-Line, which is a super gnarly uh, mountain bike trail in Whistler's Bike Park. And if you're not familiar with it, it is absolutely insane to ride this with sight. I can't, if you don't know what it is, go on to YouTube and, and look it up because there's there's some POV videos there and it's like astounding. So I just thought, um, imagine riding that blind. It's, it's yeah, right. imagine doing what, what can't he do? This, right. Yeah, what yeah. can he do is the real question there, Kara. It seems like no matter what he decides to do, he's going to be able to figure out a way to do it, huh? That seems like how he was brought up, huh, Kara? Well, yeah, and I, you said you want to meet his mom. Like, I, his mom and his dad, I, they seem to uh, take it in stride and support him and encourage him to to go after whatever his dreams may be. Well, he's doing it and making him proud. Jeff, what are you thinking after hearing this conversation with Mac and Tristan? What are your thoughts of the day? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you to both Mac and Tristan for letting us share the story. And I think it's super cool that we get to showcase uh, a Paralympian and a two-time gold medalist. I, I think it's fantastic. But I want to, like, what I really am impressed with is, like, the amount of trust that it must take to <laughs> follow a guide down a hill doing something like more than a hundred kilometers an hour with someone just telling you there's a bump, uh, a roll, a left footer, a right footer. It's slick. The amount of trust that that must take, just think about the trust fall that you, that maybe you participated in when you were in school or at some sort of summer camp where you're falling off a picnic table and hoping that the people behind you catch you. It's like that times. Yeah. It's, but it, but it's like the trust fall at, 65 miles an hour. We're not talking slalom or GS here, Jeff. We're talking like super G downhill with your eyes closed. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, and not only that, like as Kara talked about, I mean, he's skiing, you know, kaleidoscope and the coffin at Whistler, like lines that if you have sight are scary as shit. 
And this guy's doing it just on, you know, the word of his guide. And so uh, kudos to Tristan. I think it's an amazing story. And uh, I'm so happy that you guys got to talk to him. Yeah, for, for me, my thinking is like my thoughts are I, I'm so impressed with their relationship. And again, that amount of trust, it says a lot about Mac, though, that he's been able to establish this level of trust and be successful with, you know, four guides from his brother to a couple other guides. And now to Tristan, you know, to establish that relationship, it says a lot about Mac, right? The 6% vision that that Mac has blows my mind what they're able to do. But his his spirit and character of just, yeah, we're going to go figure out what I want to do next. And I'm going to find ways to do it is really is my takeaway. Like that's, that's what's pretty impressive about this guy is just his can-do, will-do attitude. I'm also left, though, with Tristan's story. And I think it's really fascinating to have, to grow up with Olympic dreams and successful dreams, lose those um, for a few reasons as a ski racer, but find this Olympic path as a guide. I think it's really admirable in some ways to 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 work for Mac and 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 give service to Mac and his goals. But I think it's really cool that you get to accomplish those goals yourself um, as a guide. And I really encourage young ski racers to take a look at this path because I think it's really cool. And para-athletes are some of the most badass athletes on, on, on snow. So I've met a few of them and they're all a little nutty, but their character is steely and they're solid people. So those are my thoughts of the day. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation with Mac and Tristan. Again, thanks to them. Again, share your thoughts with us at thenextturnpodcast.com slash thoughts. And we'll see you all soon here at The Next Turn. Be well.